Welcome to Recovery Uncovered, brought to you by Whiskey and Milk. I'm Adam Clark. I'm Sarah Sellers. As recovering addicts, we're on a mission to fight the stigma against addiction. And inspire those struggling by sharing the experience of real people in recovery. Because addiction doesn't discriminate. Behind every struggle, there's a person with a story. This This is Recovery Recovery Uncovered. Uncovered. Attention, now arriving at your destination. The last house on the block. Welcome, everybody, to Recovery Uncovered, episode number four. Back again today with Sarah and our guest, Libby. Welcome, Libby. Really happy you're here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Can you tell um, Can you tell Adam what your process was like preparing for this podcast? Because I kind of talked with you before you came on, but I just love how mindful you've been about this. Well, I had lots of questions. Okay. You know, is it audio? Is it video? Is it, you know, do I need to look cute or does it matter or, (laughs) you know, esoteric things like that? But, but no, I ask, um, what questions are you going to, what's the format and what Mm -hmm. questions are you going to ask? And and she said, we have a list of questions that Adam did them. And, uh, she sent them to me and I looked over the questions and I have to think about things, you know? Right. And so she called me today to to see if I could come, check, double checking. And um, she said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm sitting on my deck. It's the nicest afternoon. I have a cool wind blowing, and I'm pondering these questions. That's awesome. Pondering or meditating over yeah. <laughs> either term. I love that. Well, I love that we have a format for today also. Um We'll just start off with that first question. When did you get sober? This time in 2008. Okay. I went to treatment in 1996. Okay. So you were trying for a while. Yes. I had two relapses. Okay. Was there periods of sobriety in between there? Oh, yeah. There were years of sobriety. And then it would be, you know, maybe I'm not really an alcoholic. Yeah. And then I was. Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe I'm not thoroughly convinced. Yeah. And then I had to be. Mm -hmm. I I think uh, each of my relapses is invaluable to me because they taught me something I could learn in no other way. Mm -hmm. Apparently. I think that happens to uh, to a lot of people, especially nowadays, because you see people come into recovery for a lot of things other than alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so they might have been on painkillers or on amphetamines, and they get some clean time, and they're like, well, was I really an alcoholic? You know, I, I never did drink that crazy. And, you know, maybe forgetting the fact that they drank all throughout their use. Um, but it's it's insidious how this disease will, will trick us and, and make our minds run. It is, but what I had to learn from that is um, that it's not about what I drink. Mm-hmm. It's about how I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I had to become thoroughly convinced of that Yeah. before I made real progress in recovery. Well, I, the next thing we were going to ask was what led up to your um, last time getting sober, but what led up to the... Pat, the first time you got sober. What it was like is um, chaos. 
Yeah. I had a full-time job. I had a responsible job. I was working in a university. Um, I was going to school full-time, working on my Ph.D., and I was a single parent with a five-year-old. And then I tried to get out and party as much as I could. And um, trying to juggle all of those balls when you're kind of impaired Mm -hmm. at some points was hard. And I really understood the the power of unmanageability. Yeah. Well, then what was this last time like? Like just flashing forward to 2008, why then do you think you've been able to make it this large stint of sobriety? The relapse before 2008 was about... I mean, I think the only reason that anyone relapses is because they want to. Mm-hmm. And I guess I wanted to. Yeah. Uh, I needed to learn something, apparently. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't look at it as a failure or a failing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look at it as, hey, I learned this lesson that I needed to learn. Yeah. And so what I learned that, um, like I said, it's not about how I, what I drank. It's about what, how I think. Yeah. And I learned that. That's the basis of addiction mm-hmm. is the thinking. Yeah, that's something I didn't realize when I first went into uh, treatment. I, th- I thought that like, all right, I'm going to go through detox, get through the withdrawals. I'll have the alcohol and drugs out of my system and then I'll just be normal. And that's so far from the truth for somebody like me. Like I'm, I'm still stuck with the ism part of the alcoholism. Um, I was actually talking with my, my parents about it the other night because they were listening to our previous episode of the podcast where we had Jody on and, and he was talking about various relapses after extended periods in treatment. And my mom was like, I just don't see how four months of treatment you could go back to using. I'm like, if you don't fix me, if you just remove the alcohol and drugs, but you don't do any of the work that accompanies that then all you're left with when shit hits the fan again is the solution that you know. And that's why we went to alcohol and drugs, because for whatever period of time until it stopped, it worked for us. Right. And my relapses were like this. The first time, I drank one night, and then I came back in. And I went, ooh, I didn't like that, so I came back in. And then um, the last one was just, I just wanted to. Yeah. So have, each of I your have, relapses. I have no excuse or answer. I just wanted to. <laughs> yeah. 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 At the time, though, did you have more of an excuse? Were you going to sh- really say to family or to your community, friends? No. What What happened is um, I would go to professional meetings and, and things in my mm-hmm. career, and there would always be drinking there and parties and things and I just thought that if you did it out of town, it didn't count. Oh. Mm. And, and no one would know, you know. And, yeah. And that happened a couple of times. And um, after that, it was like, well, I know. And I don't like how that makes me feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when, I, when I'm not aligned with my spiritual path, I get really uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't like to lead that double life. No. It feels icky it does nowadays. it absolutely does like I, I did it for so long and felt like I did it well looking back I, I don't really think I ever had it together as I thought I did um but I, I've talked about that 
you know, with my recovery, there was several periods where I was very closed off about the fact that I'm a recovering alcoholic to addict. And it kind of felt like the same thing. Like there was these two parts of me that were separate and I couldn't let them touch. And even that eventually felt like, Ugh, I don't, I don't want to feel like that anymore. If somebody doesn't like me or doesn't want to hire me because of where I've been, then that's probably somebody that God doesn't want me to get hired by or have in my life or, or any of those other things. Right. I felt like two separate people, you know, button down professional during the day Mm -hmm. and then different, you know, when I'm not at work. Yeah. And, um, I was able to have a lot of success, uh, even though I was drinking and using. Cause I didn't, I didn't do it at work, but I'm sure it affected my thinking a lot. Yeah. And that we won't ever get that full picture from everyone. You know, I've gotten a few comments and my close family and friends have told me what it was like for me, but I'll never get the full truth of it. Like I get their perspective. My perspective is completely flawed. Mm -hmm. Um, My memory is not going to be reliable when it comes to things that I don't want to remember, you know, (laughs) when it comes to opinions that I still want to have that I was fine and um, and everything looked good on the outside. My, my mind tells me that, yeah, you, you did look great. Even to this day, mm-hmm. my friend will tell me things that I did in, in school. And I'm like, no, it didn't, you know? And I truly mean that. I'm like, there's no way I did not do that. Yeah. I relate to that. I mean, I know that there's things that I don't even remember, but then also like there was so much repetitive monotony in it. Like, I would go to work and I would get high and I would do the same thing day over day. And so like, I remember getting, uh, one of my managers at a restaurant I was serving and bartending at, like pulled me to the front one day before the shift and was like, Adam, I need to talk to you. Like what's going on. You're, you're going to the bathroom like 20 times during a shift. And like, I knew I was going back there a bunch. Like you can't just snort blow on like the bar counter in front of customers. Um, right. But it was just like I was so out of it and so speedy and so doped up. Like I thought like, okay, maybe I'm going like three or four times, like a little bit more than normal. But she was like, you're back there all the time. Yeah. And I made up this whole story about how ever since my granddad died, it had affected me on such a deep emotional level uh, that my anxiety had started affecting my stomach and I had developed irritable bowel syndrome. And that's why I was in the bathroom so much. And I thought I fooled her. And alcoholics are such cons. Oh, yeah. Yes. I'm sure she yes. was looking at me like, this idiot. Like, But I, I was like, got away with it again. Yeah, yeah. But I, I do remember um, when I, in my recovery, the point in my recovery when I felt like those two um, selves were integrated. Mm-hmm. And it was in the seventh step prayer when I said these words and it actually opened my heart yeah and you know when it says my creator i'm now willing that you should have all of me good and bad and i thought that's it you know yeah that's the integration i I have to accept the things that i think are bad as well as the things that i think are good yeah about me do you think that you started this is not this is off script but i'm just curious with all this time that you've had um, 
being in and out of the program, do you think that between all the the relapses before 2008 that you have still grown? Oh, yes. I, I don't think you lose anything. Yeah. I mean, you can't lose that I've not heard experience. that. Yeah. You can't lose the things you hear in meetings. You can't lose the things, you know, when people say things and you hear them, mm-hmm. like later, you know, and you know who said it. You, you don't yeah. lose that. Yeah. I just thought, I just think for me, I lost my way a little. Yeah. And, and like I said, the relapse was one day. It wasn't like I was out for years, you know, and mm-hmm. came back in. But um, anyway, I, d- I just don't think you lose that. I think yeah. a lot of people miss that. You know, they think that, like, if they relapse, like, well, screw it. I might as well go off the deep end because I got to start all the way mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. And and from lots of people I've talked to, that that's not been their experience. You know, just like you said, you have all of that knowledge. You know what to do. You probably know what you didn't do. I heard, I don't know who said it or if I saw it in a comment or something somewhere, but pertaining to relapse, somebody said, don't get furious, get curious, you know, get down to the cause and condition. Like, why did it happen? What did I miss? And that's the lesson, I Mm -hmm. think. What, you know, what caused this? What was I thinking about when this happened and, and why? And and what's the lesson? Yeah. in it. So what were your treatment experiences like? Oh, I love treatment. Oh, yeah. Same. For the, Same. For the first time <laughs> in my life. You know, I'd like always been, like, so responsible and, and had to carry the load by myself, or I, that was my perception. And um, in treatment, I, could, I didn't have anybody to take care of. I could just be me. I could go to art therapy and dance music and, you know, play volleyball. Yeah, and yeah. The only thing I had to do was make my bed, and I already did that every morning anyway. <laughs> so, and I just met such amazing people there, and I had amazing uh, counselors. Yeah. What was it like then leaving that experience and getting out into your Well, I day-to-day? didn't want to leave. Yeah. Because, um, and I said, if you could just bring my daughter here, I will stay forever. Mm-hmm. But... That you know that didn't work out. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, when I went back home, I had to go back to work. That was so meetings saved my life. Yeah. And um, so almost the only outings I had was work and meetings and and be with my daughter. You know. Yeah. It's it's so interesting how we all have different. I don't know, responsibilities when we come back, if you did treatment or even if, if you don't. Like, I personally, I didn't have anything to do. Um, they had put me on a homebound situation at school, so I had had some schoolwork on the side, but, like, I really didn't have a job. Mm. So I was in those meetings constantly, and I, I kind of think for me it was good I didn't have responsibilities. Um, but I could also see the other side of that where – it forces you to get outside of yourself, be responsible, have something to fill up your time instead of just sitting around and hoping that you don't drink. Um, but it's always it's it's always interesting to me to hear the two sides of it and kind of what your what is your perspective on you going back to work to work? Do you think that was good? 
I think it was really good for me. I mean, yeah. I, I missed teaching because yeah. that's what I did. I, I missed the students, <laughs> and uh, that's where I get my uh, energy and fulfillment from. Um, when I came back from treatment, in fact, I had more time than I did before I went because um, I didn't have a him. He was gone. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. Explain what a him is. A him, uh, that's a relationship. Right. <laughs> so um anyway and I got to I got to find out things about me the early sobriety was very much a discovery time for me yeah Mm -hmm. I mean I learned that I started flower gardening you know oh and I've never done that before but my my dad was a big flower gardener and so I started that and I started um, ballroom dancing because I thought that would be something I would like, and I loved it. And, you know, it was I was in that position that always having a him that I liked what they liked. You know, mm. I didn't really know myself. And so um, on, on one day, I read this book, The Artist Way, and they would have, have you to have a date with yourself, like, every week. Okay. So oh, one wow. artist date, I went to a fabric store just to kind of look around to see what colors attracted me, what patterns, what textures, what, you know, because I didn't really know that stuff. I was discovering all that about myself. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that like was, I don't know if I'd say a struggle, but it was, it was weird to me coming out of treatment and then, cause I kind of did the same thing. Like I, I had to go back to work pretty quickly um, and I had like the weight of the world coming behind me, like my car was getting repoed and I had to figure that out and figure out how to buy another car and I didn't have any money. Um, and like all of these consequences were kind of just like right on my tail. Um, and so like, I think it was good for me too to, to go back into the real world and have to, to start working on how do I fix these things? Like when the debt collectors would call for the years before and I would ignore them, I started answering their phone calls. And they're like, how much can you pay us? I'm like, well, I'm a heroin addict and I just got out of treatment, so not much. <laughs> and a debt collector, when you say that to them, they, they really are not very pushy. They're like, oh, <clears throat> oh um, wow, oh, uh, okay, can you, can you do $10 a month? And I'm like, I can do $10 a month. <laughs> um, but then like figuring out what I liked because all I'd liked for so many years was girls, drugs, and parties. And, like, that that was the extent of Adam's passions. And so trying to figure out, like, well, I used to play golf when I was a kid. Maybe I like golf. And it turns out I do like golf. Um, but I, I like that, the artist state of, like, going and taking yourself intentionally to do something. Because I'm I'm always been the same way in relationships. Like, I'm heavily codependent. Um, I, I take that person's friends and I take that person's hobbies. Um, and I try to make them my, my own. Um, and so it's kind of been a journey for me figuring out like, all right, get all that other BS out of the way. Who is Adam? Um, and it, I mean, it's still a journey. I feel like I'm a lot further than I was when I first got out of treatment, but it's like a constant learning experience. It's still a journey because I have to learn to take off the mask and the armor that I wear to, um, you know, the ego things. And so I have to Remove that and then find out what's inside. Yeah. And uh, the treatment center that I went to, the philosophy was that it's all codependence. And 
everything you use is to treat your codependence. Mm-hmm. And I really learned a lot, you know, like the love addict and the love avoidant and, and things like that. And, and sometimes it would be physically painful because I'm hearing my truth mm-hmm. for the first time ever. But it was so enlightening and so heart-opening that um, when I came back from treatment, I felt really, really good. First, I felt physically better. Um, Second, the treatment center that I went to, they didn't do sugar or caffeine or anything like that, so it was completely drug-free. Yeah, Pull your mic just a little closer. Completely (laughs) drug-free. And um, I just, you know, it was like a, a... time for discovery yeah it was perfect opportunity how did that change like and it maybe it didn't but um your perspective on addiction and recovery going into that I know I had a very kind of blind view to it like I looked down on alcoholics or addicts or like I would have been like oh it's just a dirty junkie and then like all of a sudden I'm the dirty junkie um and like a lot of the the stuff that I learned in treatment through counseling and therapy, you know, behind like how addiction actually works on the brain, how my body is different because of it. Did that change your perspective? Did you, you know, view people like us differently before you realized you were one or? Well, of course I wasn't an alcoholic. My therapist tried to tell me that I was, but I told her, just bring out that checklist. I'll show you that I'm not an alcoholic. Like I don't drink by myself. I don't drink every day. I don't do, you know, have a job. I'm responsible. I pay my bills. I was more like, I don't do any of that. And then she said this to me, Libby, it doesn't matter how often you drink or how much you drink. It's about what you do when you drink. And I told her that, well, we might have a problem. So, you know, I just, I had that perception of an alcoholic as um, a bum that lived under the bridge. And Mm -hmm. that's so totally not true. You know, we come from every walk of life. Yeah. So what did that look like for you when you did drink? Like what did the the consequences look like, the negative effects that you you didn't like? Kind of walk us through that a little bit. Um, Well, I didn't have a lot of consequences like, like other people talk about, no DUIs, no jail time, no. One reason I always had a him. So he was driving when I was drunk. Mm-hmm. And um, not to say I didn't, but, you know, that, that was kind of a barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly I lost myself. I lost my soul. You know, I had all these outside things that I thought um, relayed success. But inside, I was a shell. I mean, I was empty. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just think I lost my essence, who I was, my soul. Yeah, I relate to that so much. Because I still, I mean, I, I do think that I stayed out of, I don't, I don't know. I just, I, I know that I didn't hit those consequences like you're talking about. Not the DUIs, not the... You know, I didn't have a family to lose or kids to lose or anything of that nature. But I, I felt so empty 
And that double life for me was so the trying to put the face on in public and then really wanting to die, really yeah. not wanting to be around anymore, really feeling like no one would, you know, it, it was just a constant like, what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what am I doing here? Uh, no, I, I, I like to relate that to, um, I call that the chocolate bunny theory. Okay. Like, you know, when you get those solid chocolate bunnies at Easter, they're uh-huh. heavy, they're substantial, uh-huh. they're made of something, right? And then you get those, and, and they're just plain chocolate. Yeah. And you get those hollow ones. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they have the bow on their neck, they have the eyeball. You know, they're really dressed up. But you bite in it, and it crumbles, it falls apart. Yeah. I love that. And that's, yeah, the, that's the way I felt, like the hollow bunny, you know? Yeah. And, and I always thought, if you look good on the outside and you... Apparently, you know, have a few things, then you're okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's so far from the truth for me now. Yeah. I always thought dressing up my outsides would fix my insides. Right, right. Or if I could get you to believe that I was okay, then maybe I would be able to believe it. That's like I'm polishing the cage on the outside, but on the inside, I'm dying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I spent a lot of energy doing that. So what does that now look like for you with bringing spirituality into it? You said earlier, you know, that you didn't always feel like you were spiritually connected. And in those moments, that was when you made the worst decisions or just felt the worst. What makes you feel good now? If you can describe it in words, because I understand this is a tough topic, but what makes you feel like, okay, I'm a healthy, I'm in a good place right now. I think connection to other people. Okay. Um, and when I'm feeling okay about myself, you know, and I yeah. and I like myself now, you know, I like the insides and the yeah. outsides. That's such a good uh, feeling. It is. Yes. It is. It, it's hard. It's hard one. You know. Um, I think being around other people in recovery, um, I have a great relationship with my husband and with my daughter and with my grandchildren and I've I feel spiritual then you know mm-hmm. also I like to travel a lot and when and I like to travel to spiritual places um, and so a lot of times I'll go on retreats in spiritual places and I really feel connected there I mean I need that grounding yeah to, like come back to the real world and be okay yeah. I I have another question with that because I'm I'm kind of in that place at 6 years sober where it's not that, you know, recovery itself isn't enough. It's it's still feeding me. Mm-hmm. There's still so much I haven't experienced or um really benefited from yet that I know I can and it's been incredible for me to go outside of normal recovery, whatever that means, and and seek out more for my spirituality. When did you, if you did, when did you start to realize that, you know, I, I want to go outside of my normal circles and get more? I think it was, um, I like to say that... Um, that a recovery program was essential for mm-hmm. me, but it wasn't 
enough. Yeah. I, I needed that. Once you have physical sobriety, I needed that spiritual sobriety. And for me, that happened. The first time I went to um, a Buddhist monastery, we have one. We're lucky to have one two hours away from us. Yeah, It's called, in Batesville, Mississippi, it's called Plum Village Practice Center. And I went there around um, 2009 for the first time, I believe. Oh. And that took my recovery to a whole new level. Yeah. You know, it was about transforming the insight. And um, it was established by, by Thich Nhat Hanh, a Zen master. And his... Um, his mission, I guess you could say, is reconciliation. Mm. And so what I learned there was that um, I needed to reconcile myself with, with what I had done and how I had lived. And I learned that I'm a spiritual being, you know. Yeah. And there was a lot of meditation. There was a lot of acceptance there's a lot of inclusion um and that how we can live with all people Mm -hmm. and once I learned that and I got to practice it I mean you, you go there and you get away from the world and you're in nature and you sit and you listen and it it just opened up my world that may do you have do you <laughs> sorry no you're good go ahead <laughs> i i really have always and and now is obviously so much better but explaining this to people that haven't meditated is really hard mm-hmm. i have the hardest time explaining especially people that are new to recovery explaining to them like how to meditate and that you're not meant to just levitate off the ground and there is no perfect to this. That's why it's practice. So what were, and I know you meditate a lot. Um, and, and before you say, no, I don't, (laughs) um, I, I just, I'm positive you at least meditate more than me. So what were those first few times like for you? And then just, is it in as many words as you want how did you get to this point where you kept doing it? Well, here's what I learned. And um, long ago, before I was even sober, I went to a meditation class. And I told, okay. I told the instructor, instructor, I said, I can't do it. I said, I sit down and I don't get an insight. And, mm-hmm. and she said, <laughs> um, you're not supposed to. You know, that's not what it's for. My thoughts wonder. She goes, they wonder. They do wonder. But, but when I went to the monastery and they taught us how they meditate, it was like, oh, thoughts come and go. They're supposed to. They come and you let them go. And then you'll have another one and you think, oh, that's interesting. And you let it go. And you meditate so that your body is relaxed. Your mind is calm and your body's relaxed. That's the purpose of meditation. And if you get an insight... Or an understanding, that's just icing on the cake. Yeah. You know? And so you start small, you know, maybe five minutes. Sometimes I can't sit for five minutes. Sometimes I can sit for 30. You know, it just, it just depends. But it's, it's like everything else. If you practice, you can do it. I think there's, 
a, a lot of like misconceptions around meditation and what it actually is. Um, Definitely. Like you were saying with people early in recovery, but also just normal people. Um, like the first time that I told my mom that I was meditating, she was like, <sighs> like, like it was like some, I don't know, witchcraft or like yep. something that, that didn't voodoo. go with yeah. the beliefs that's majority here in the Bible belt. Um, and I think it can be different for every person, you know, what, what they get out of meditation or, or what they're trying to connect to. Um, because I felt the same way the first time I was like, my mind is just running. I'm thinking about all these people and all these different things. And I know doing some guided meditation kind of with some structure helped me get to a place where I could do it better on my own. Um, but for me, it's like being okay with the thoughts that come through my mind. Yeah, you know, that's what I learned. Experiencing them without judgment. Um, just because I think this thing, it doesn't have to alter my, my state of being or my reality. Like that's a thought it can come and it can go. And if I need to revisit it later, I can, but I don't have to like sit and spin on it. I can just sit and be at peace. I think that's what I learned. That's why it took my recovery to a whole new level is I learned that I just have thoughts. I don't know where they come from. Yeah. How many, you know, we have like millions of thoughts a day and that's probably an exaggeration but a lot of thoughts a day and mm-hmm. how yeah. many of them am i consciously thinking yeah and so where do those come from yeah well, they're just noise you know they're just like oh that's interesting and let it go and i i had to learn there's a trick that you're the observer you know i'm the observer of my mind and um and I just look at the thoughts with interest and non-judgment. Yeah. I think that's one of the cool things about recovery, too, is that, like, just because I have a thought doesn't mean I have to act on it. Mm-hmm. Because that's how I lived the entire time up until getting sober. It was like, thought, let's do it. Not even a moment of, mm-hmm. like, is that a good thought? Is that a bad thought? No do letting I it go. Yeah, it was just bam, bam, bam. Action, action, action. Yeah. Um, and so, like, and one of the things in talking to other people in recovery, you know, like just cause you have a thought, like it doesn't mean that you're bad for having that thought, even if you have a crazy thought. And it definitely doesn't mean that you, you have to act on it. Like, I, I mean, I have some wild thoughts sometimes, you know, I'm standing on a hotel balcony. I'm like, what would happen if I just yeeted myself over the edge? Like, I'm not going to do it, but you know, that, that thought came through my mind. Um, so I think it's a, a really beneficial practice for, for people like us in, in recovery to realize that we are not our thoughts. We are our actions. You know, what are my feet doing? Not what nonsense is rattling around in the skull of mine. Yeah, and they're not always true. Like, I mean, I I relate to all that, and I know that underneath my addiction, underneath a lot of my mental health issues or whatever, all the ways I was acting out, before recovery was I don't think highly of myself, but not only do I not think highly of myself, I also continuously will tell myself, you're not to be thought of highly. You're dumb. You're stupid. Why did you just do that? Why'd you say that? You know, and it would, but it would be constant just going around in that circle. And it's a nice visual that you were making where it comes and we just say, oh, that's interesting, and then let it go. 
because mine would come, you're, you're an annoying human. And then it goes around and I'm like, I am an annoying human. I really am annoying human. I annoy people. Just like this person doesn't like me, this person doesn't like me, this person doesn't like me. I'm a really annoying human and I can't fix that. You know, like it, there was not that let it go mm-hmm. piece. And I've learned to do that in recovery and then teach yoga classes with that in mind. Keeping it in mind that even I'm about to go off a little bit, but like, you know, being in a pose in class, like my mind will tell me you're not good at this. You're not strong enough to hold this pose. You don't look good in the pose. You know, just all these things that are unimportant, um, weighing me down even more. And then life goes on like that with everything I do. You know, there's um, something to be said about meditation in that critical voice. When I can, again, be the observer of my thoughts and not take them in as truth, Mm -hmm. then that critical voice is like, where did that come from? That's not true. Yeah. And I know, I, I think I've been able to change my thinking with that because I'll say something about myself and I'll go, that's not true. And so immediately change it to, some, to another thought. Yeah. You know, for instance, I spilled something the other day and I went, I automatically went, oh, Libby, you're so stupid. <laughs> and I went, that's not true. That was an accident. People spill things. I'm not stupid for mm-hmm. doing that. And and you, I really have to retrain my brain because that critical voice is there. Yeah. You're I, getting me excited because I feel that way now. Like yeah. I can have that. And yoga too is a, it's a, I can't think of the word, for life, uh, like a metaphor for life. Um when I was first doing, uh, doing yoga, I would get in a pose. No, when I took yoga teacher training, I would get in a pose and I would just be rigid. You know, just, oh, I'm, hold, I'm just trying to hold it so tight. Be so perfect. And my yoga teacher said, you know, you get into a position and you're strong and then you're soft. You know, you do it so much. You know, you do it this much, but not too much. And I go... I'm over here, like, struggling, trying to hold it. And he goes, oh, that's your yoga. So that's what he meant. That's the yoga I need to learn is to be strong and soft at the same time. Yeah. I have not heard that cue. I love that. It helped me a lot. That goes for everything. It like, does. It's, it's just like life. Yes. There is a definitely an equal balance of, for my higher power, for instance, like I know that I'm meant to do a job. I know that there is always my side of the output needed, you know, um, like nothing, no money's going to go in a bank account if I don't have a bank account. <laughs> like yeah. I have to set one up, for instance. But then at the same in the same thought, there's there's a limit to my abilities. And if I'm in the pose, once I'm there, it's time to soften and be there. I love that. I love that. You do yoga too, Adam. A little bit. <laughs> What's but. your experience in yoga? Just while we're on this topic, I've never asked you, what do you think about yoga? Uh, I really enjoy it. Now, I do find those thoughts coming through my head 
And it's usually more comparing myself to the other people in the classroom than it is to like my own standard. Cause my head tells me like, Oh, you look stupid. But then I forget that like everybody, or at least a lot of them are struggling to get in the same position or the same post. Cause I do beginner classes. I don't do it with advanced people. Um, you can do a level two. Ooh, I think I just got a, a level two certification from a yoga instructor. I think, guys. I this think you could, um, but yeah, you know, I have those thoughts like, oh, I'm not doing it right. I'm not doing it perfect. And I forget that like one of the important things for me is like what feels good for my body? What hurts? You know, am I am I doing something just to look like the person next to me, but I'm causing myself pain? Like that's defeating the the purpose of the mm-hmm. practice for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I love the the benefits of like getting in that mindset of the flow and cause it's, it can be meditative too, um, especially depending on who's leading it. But then like, what does my body need? Where, where am I achy? Where am I sore? Uh, this pose hurts like, okay, I'll just go back to child's pose or I'll go back to down dog. And one of the, you know, the easy ones that I know, like this feels good for me. I, I like the way that I'm stretching, that I'm moving. Um, and so that's been a, a learning experience for me. I, I haven't done it nearly as much as either of the two of y'all, but I have ever since I got sober. That was one of the things that we did in treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and like once you got cleared through detox and uh, the nurses gave you the the all clear, you could start going to yoga classes. And they had them every day. And so I did yoga almost every day that I was in treatment. Um, and from that point on, I, I really, really enjoyed the the mindfulness aspect of it and the instructor that we had there always followed it up with meditation as well, which was like brand new to me then. Um, but I feel like it kind of planted that seed of, of mindfulness of honoring my body with what I'm doing. Um, not going too crazy just because I want to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. And then that translates into other areas of my life as well, because I need to be reminded that like, it doesn't matter what Sarah's doing or what level of success she's having or what Libby's doing. Like it matters what Adam's doing and I need to compare myself to what did Adam do yesterday? Mm-hmm. How can I be better than, than I was not why don't I have what she has or why can't I get the job that he has or the car or all these other, other things that, you know, those thoughts that like to come into my mind tell me I should be thinking about. Um, so it's been really beneficial for me. Yeah. The other thing about yoga and meditation is it teaches you to breathe. And that's how do so we miss important. this? I don't know. How do know. we go this far? I don't know. It's so important yeah, to breathe it really and is. to breathe correctly. And um, and yoga uh, you know, as a metaphor for life is can I be in this uncomfortable position? I'm not I'm not hurting myself. I'm just stretching. I'm just uncomfortable. And can I breathe through this? Yeah. I mean, that's a whole lot of life. You know, can I breathe through this? Yeah. And sometimes taking three slow, deep breaths saves my butt. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And being able to, to center your mind in those situations in life and to not not just go crazy with, with whatever the thoughts are. It makes me think of doing the ice baths as well. Cause like you hop in an ice bath and your whole body's like, <gasps> it's instant shock. And your, your reaction is to be, like, 
and start breathing really deep and you want to like flail around, which makes it worse. It feels better when you, you hold still and then you have that little warm barrier and you deep, intentional, slow mm-hmm. breathing. And after about 30, 45 seconds of shock, all of a sudden it's like, okay, I can manage this. Yeah. But if you never quit moving, if you never slow your breath and get into a rhythm, then it can be painful the whole time. And some people will get out saying that was a horrible experience before they let themselves settle. And so it kind of, it makes me think of the same thing. I I love what you said, the three deep breaths. Is that something I practice at work regularly? Yes. Um, kind of, yes, because you deal with the public, so uh-huh. I can see why. Yes. <laughs> but, but, yes, that that really saves me. And, ju- you know, the ice bath, too, that's that's a, a metaphor for recovery is some people never experience it. They don't stay long enough, and they want to flail around, and, you know, it just doesn't work. Right. I was listening to, to something earlier, and they were – talking about hopping in a, a pool is a metaphor for recovery. And like if you're out at the swimming pool and it's it's a little cold and you dip your toe in the water, it's like, ooh. And then if you go to the steps and you start to just walk in a step at a time, you'll never get in there. It's miserable the whole time. But if you just go hop off the diving board into the deep end, you're shocked by the cold for a second. And then very quickly afterwards, you're like, oh, it wasn't so bad anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that's how recovery's got to be, at least for me. Like, there wasn't, at the point that I was at, there wasn't any moderating. There wasn't any controlling my usage. I, I tried all the different tricks, substitution swaps for that. Like, I either had to be all in or stay out. Uh-huh. I know. I was um, 40 when I went to treatment, and I'd already done all that. So I was ready. You know, I was ready when they, when, um, I went to treatment and learned about what was going on with me. It was like, wow, I really, I'm going to take this and run with it. And it, it, and I have. It was such a relief to me to learn about like the disease of addiction Mm -hmm. and how it affects my brain. Um, I don't know about you, but I had these thoughts that like I just had a moral shortcoming, that something was wrong with me, that like, I hadn't prayed hard enough when I was a kid or I hadn't done church right or, you know, if all these other people could could do what they were doing. Like, I I thought I was just broken and that maybe I would never be, quote, good. Um, And so that was a big relief to me to learn, like, no, this is how these chemicals affect your brain and they do it in this way for this reason. And um, to learn that there was a solution because I was at the point, like you're saying, you know, I was 25 when I went to treatment. Um, but I'd hit the point where I could no longer picture my life with it and I could no longer picture my life without it. Um, and like I, I remember sitting at this house that I was living at and I don't know what substances I was on at the time, but just remember thinking like, this is it. This is as good as life's ever going to get for me. All the hopes and dreams and, and things that I had somewhat planned for my future were just like, I, I'd reached the point where I thought none of that's attainable anymore. Um, and so learning that there was a solution, a way out, that people like me and people who had done worse things than me had successfully been able to recover was like <sighs> that same sigh of relief that I got from taking that first drink. Yeah. I think a, a lot of times, I know it was for me, and I've heard, experienced a lot of women saying this too, is that that deep feeling of unworthiness is the bottom of our addiction. That's it. That's the very root of it. 
And so, no, I don't deserve anything good. No, I'm not worthy. You know, I don't know where we get that. Well, I do some. But I think it's our culture. Yeah. Um, the patriarchy and, and then just, you know, family of origin stuff. That I believe that's we get a lot of, I know where I got a lot of my beliefs. And um, even if it wasn't meant as a negative or oppressive, it, it was still, that's where I picked up that belief. Maybe they said something and I took it in as the truth. Because yeah. I went for 40 years thinking that I was not wanted and that I caused problems in my family. And they had this nice little family of three. And then I came along and everything blew up. Mm. And so I took on all the... Um, all the emotional baggage for that. Yeah. And that was so not true. Mm-mm. That was not true at all. But I just heard little snippets of things, and the story I made up was that, man, I'm the bad seed. Yeah. Well, and as a kid, you don't have any frame of reference. No, like, no. Anything that your parents tell you, like, you know, my parents up until a certain age, like they were the ultimate authority on life and everything that I knew and everything that I needed to know. And looking back now, I can see that they were doing the best that they could do with what they had at that point. But if they told me something, whether it was true or not, like that was fact in mm-hmm. my head now. I believed it. Um, and there wasn't, even if somebody else told me like, no, that's wrong. But like, my dad said it, you don't, you don't know. Like, um, because, and, I think that's just how kids are programmed to, to believe. I think so, too. Or how we're brought up to believe. So in recovery, there's a whole lot for me of uncovering those beliefs and learning that they don't really have a basis in truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just something that I didn't have the words or the understanding or at that time. And so the story I made up and be- took in as the truth was a negative one. Yeah. For instance, I can recall one time... Um, this is a little thing, but my mother told me, Libby, you look so pretty when you wear lipstick. And rather than taking that as a compliment, what I heard was, you're so ugly if you don't wear makeup, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. She didn't intend that. It was right. just how I took it. But, you know, it was years before I could uncover something like that. Yeah. But that's what's so exciting and uh, about recovery for me is that, I still uncover those things. Mm. You know, I'm still growing. I'm still still learning, still yeah. developing. Yeah, I thought that, you know, when I first got sober, first got out of treatment, that there was going to be a point where, like, I'm recovered. Right. <laughs> Past tense. Like, I don't have to do it anymore. And I remember thinking, like, when I picked up a year, like, we're there. We've made it. And every year I can look back and be like, man, I've had so much growth in the previous year. And I hope that it continues like that. I think it'll get boring if it doesn't. Um, but so far, that's been my experience is that, that year over year, like the way that I think changes, the way that I react to situations and to people changes. Um, and, and now I'll find myself in conversations sometimes and I'll say something and I'll be like, where did that come from? Like that was some spiritual or that was like really level-headed and clear-minded and like that wouldn't have happened a year ago or two years ago. Well, you know, it, it says in the big book that we have recovered from hopeless mind and body, you know, the hopeless mm-hmm. condition of mind and body. And I think we do. 
or I think I feel like I've recovered from that. I don't feel hopeless anymore, you know. Yeah. I I just feel that there's more to me to uncover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's I don't feel hopeless and my mind doesn't feel like that. You know, it's still it's crazy sometimes and then I can say that's not true. <laughs> but but um anyway, it, there are recovered parts, I think. Yeah, no, I really like that perspective of it because I agree with you like I'm not hopeless, um, not at all anymore. As a matter of fact, I'm quite the opposite. Like my life is filled with hope and I have dreams again and I have goals and things that I'm working towards. Um, and there's so much more positivity in my life than there, than there was when I got here because I, I was, I, I was in a state of seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Like I was, there, there was not much of Adam left. Um, but that's not, not the case for me today. So I wanted to go back and, and ask you um, kind of like how your drinking started. How old were you when you first drank? Did it Was it an immediate progression to like out of control or was it kind of a slow ride? The first time I got drunk, it was at my eighth grade graduation. And I'm sorry. <laughs> what? <laughs> Turned down for what? <laughs> okay. We used to um, camp out. Okay. You know, the girls would camp out. Okay, so then if the girls would camp out. The boys would come. You know that tracks. You know about that. Um, so anyway, this guy brought a six pack in a duffel bag, hot six pack in Ooh. a duffel bag. We all popped one and drank it. I think it took like one. You know, and um, I just remember, I love feeling like this. You know, I just love it. And um, I think it just progressed to there. I, you know, I am always have been one of those kind of, but yeah, I'll try it. You know, I'll try anything once. Yeah. And that I think a lot of alcoholics are like that. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. uh, spontaneous and, and so, you know, high school, we, I had an older boyfriend, of course. And um, so I drank beer with him and stuff like that. And then. It just progressed to where I didn't need to do it anymore. Yeah. I feel like you are, just knowing you now, you're a really good mix of super zen and then also spontaneous. But how do you keep that up now? How do you keep that spontaneous side up in your recovery? I think because I'm very curious and I love people and I love to be around people and find out about them and especially new cultures and new places and and um, it just it's exciting to me but I have to have the grounded side too and that's where you know recovery meetings and yoga and meditation and things really play a big part Um, plus when you get older Things don't bother you as much. You know, I look back and I'll go, for instance, I, I read my fourth step, the first fourth step I did, which is 25, six years ago. Oh, wow. I looked at it and I went, you mean I was mad about that? <laughs> I mean, things were just so, like, yeah. petty. And, yeah. and yeah. I know. I remember. Yeah. Just, I'm there. Yeah. Just petty. <laughs> I'm there and, now. And like, you know, in yeah. the whole big scheme of things, this, this really doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, yeah. and 
I think that's why curiosity and and just learning to it just really doesn't matter. Yeah. That's awesome. I want to still be I, and it's I'm still finding that balance too, mm-hmm. but it's it's just so promising to me when I see people like yourself with time in recovery getting pumped up over stuff cuz you do. I do. You get excited. <laughs> I know I love it. You know, that that's one of the things that it's really cool to me to to see people in recovery and like compare them to to other people outside of recovery and it, there's something about being in 12 step rooms that just keeps you young and keeps I mean it it keeps the memory of where we were close because you hear newcomers share and whatnot, but um like when I I see people who are my grandparents' age in recovery, they're so much more vibrant, so much more willing to try new things do new experiences and then like my grandparents are just they're living a great life but they're not they're not doing anything new they're not having new experiences for the most part um but i think what what sarah said that balance is what's so key with it because you like you said you have both sides of that you have the zen side and then the spontaneity um and that's something that i try to balance as well um, I'm a sufferer of FOMO, fear of missing out. Oh, me too, me too. Um, and it, you know, yeah. Yeah, I have to control myself with it sometimes because I'll, I'll just like go, 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 go and run myself ragged so I don't miss out on something. Um, but then I am missing out. I'm missing out on taking care of myself and my body and being well rested because when I'm I'm not those things, then I'm not really getting the full experience and whatever I was afraid of missing out on first place yeah that's that's a big lesson for me because I just ran hard you know for as long as I could and tried to do everything and be perfect at it and um so I'm learning to slow down and 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 I still have FOMO I do but I'm thinking it's a choice you know I I choose what I want to do to follow my path yeah um and it's always that I can't do everything I want to do. There's just not enough time in the day because I'm interested in a lot of things. Yeah. But um, there's still that impulsiveness that I have to curb. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I try to try to have some quiet time about that. Yeah. Well, that was about two questions out of fifty. <laughs> so then yeah. that means <laughs> what? Do the math. 24 more episodes you're going to have to come on to. But thank you so much. Thank you for having yeah, me. Really I've really enjoyed it. it. I have. So awesome. Um, we're going to be posting this everywhere that you have podcasts. And Adam, what T-shirts are we wearing? Uh, so we're wearing a couple different designs. we got the Cunning Baffling Powerful one and the Restless Irritable Discontent. You can find them at whiskeymilk.com. I actually had a couple new designs drop yesterday. What? So go check them out. And we'll see you guys next week. Attention. Now arriving at your destination. The last house on the block.